Matthew chapter 12, beginning in verse 9. Now when he had departed from there, he went into their synagogue. And behold, there was a man who had a withered hand. And they asked him, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath that they might accuse him? Then he said to them, What man is there among you who has one sheep, and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not lay hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value then is a man than a sheep? Therefore it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out. And it was restored as whole as the other. Then the Pharisees went out and plotted against him how they might destroy him. At the beginning of the chapter, the religious leaders took exception to the disciples working on the Sabbath or threshing the grain or walking through the grain fields in verses 1 through 8. And now they're going to protest Jesus healing on the Sabbath. In verses 9 through 14, the Pharisees' no-work policy meant healing on the Sabbath from the religious leader's point of view constituted sin. Jesus is going to use logic and compassion to refute their policy. The religious leaders valued sheep. And so Jesus says, aren't human beings more valuable than sheep? In this simple statement, Jesus goes on record and affirms that the human being, the human soul has value and dignity as far as God is concerned. In verse 14, we're told of the religious leaders plan to destroy Jesus. In this section, Jesus is in effect asking and answering the question, is it wrong to do what's right even on the Sabbath day? For the Christian, we automatically discern and discover something, and that is that compassion and mercy is our full-time job. We don't exercise compassion and mercy simply on Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday or Thursday. It's something that we do throughout the week. We also discover something else. From the religious leader's perspective, Jesus will publicly, blatantly, deliberately, in their view, break the law. But we know that that's not true. Jesus isn't a lawbreaker. He does confront their traditions. We sometimes forget how serious people take religious observance. To the religious Jew forcing, if you took the religious Jew and you asked him whether or not they would be willing to die rather than work on the Sabbath, many Jews would rather die. As a matter of fact, we know that throughout history, during the time of Judas Maccabeus, which was the intertestamental period, certain Jews hid in the cave in the wilderness. Antiochus Epiphanes sent out an army to attack them, and he did so very purposely on the Sabbath day. 
because it was the Sabbath, many Jews died without even lifting a sword to protect themselves or their families. To fight would mean to break the Sabbath. The reason Pompey was able to take Jerusalem was the Jews' refusal to fight on the Sabbath. Rather than defile themselves on the Sabbath, they would watch their children die. They would watch their city burn. They would rather see their children die and their city burn rather than break the Sabbath. And the reason why I'm bringing this up is because this is the mindset that Jesus is up against. Is it lawful? To heal on the Sabbath. Again, to the observant religious Jew, working on the Sabbath was wrong. And therefore, healing was wrong because in their mindset, healing was working. The Jewish tradition allowed for helping an injured person. In the Jewish mindset, you could stop the bleeding, but you couldn't do anything that would promote recovery. As a matter of fact, the Jews wanted Jesus to say something like this. In case of immediate danger, it's okay to heal, but out of respect for God, and we need to wait until the Sabbath is over to provide additional help. Jesus knew that restoring a man to wholeness and wellness would be an act of mercy. It would be an act of compassion. And mercy and compassion was being swallowed up in the legalistic observance of rule keeping. Earlier in the chapter, Jesus quotes Hosea 6.6 in verse 7. Remember he had said, but if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice you would not have condemned the guiltless. The very next verse in Hosea chapter 6, verse 7, in Micah chapter 6, verse 8, it says, He's shown you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, but to do justly, to love mercy, to walk in humility with your God. And so in verse 9, The opportunity is given to do what's right. It says, now when he had departed from there, where? From the grain field. He went into their synagogue. And behold, there was a man who had a withered hand. The Lord leaves the grain field. He goes into the synagogue. Note, Matthew says, he went into their synagogue. I want to draw your attention to that. Don't you find that unusual? You would think, why wouldn't Matthew say, and then he went into our synagogue? Why wouldn't he say that? Why would he say their synagogue? I'm going to suggest something to you. That I'm left with the impression that Jesus isn't welcome there. And I want you to think about that for just a moment. Imagine a place, imagine a church, imagine a congregation where Jesus himself is not welcome. Can you imagine a group of people who self-identify themselves as Christians, as lovers of Jesus and followers of Jesus? They put a great big sign out in front of their church. They hang a cross on the wall. 
Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not opposed to having a cross on the wall. On, on occasions, people will come in and they'll say, where's the cross? And I'll say, have you ever been to, to this church? Have you ever heard me teach? Have you ever heard me ever not bring up the cross, the sacrifice of Jesus? His sacrificial death is what saves us. Some people want the symbol, but they don't want the substance. It isn't the presence or the absence of a cross that makes a church. It's the presence or the absence of the message of the cross. And so imagine a place where Jesus isn't welcome. In Luke chapter 6, verses 6 and 7, in the parallel passage, Luke writes, Now it happened on another Sabbath also that he entered the synagogue and taught, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. So the scribes and the Pharisees watched him closely, Jesus that is, to see whether or not he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find an accusation against him. And in verse 8 it says, but he knew their thoughts. He knew what they were thinking. And this is interesting. Jesus walks into the congregation and he notices that there's a man in need. Oddly enough, the religious leaders are also aware of this man's presence. So I want you to think about this for just a moment. The man with the withered hand is there. Jesus knows that he's there. The religious leaders know that he's there. But note, the religious leaders have absolutely no concern for this person. What their concern is, what will Jesus do with this man? The presence of the man with the withered hand in the synagogue was mute testimony, at least in part, to their inability to help him. And I want you to think again about that for just a moment. He's there, he's hurt, he's broken. All of their well wishes, all of their desires can't make him well. Jesus invades the space where the Pharisees believe that they are most powerful and have the most authority, the congregation, the synagogue. But I'm going to suggest to you that he really isn't welcome there. He's really not wanted there. Because remember, the purpose of the church is to glorify God and to exalt Jesus and to worship Jesus and to praise Jesus and to proclaim Jesus. When the church fails to do that, it will offer other avenues of expression, social activism or political activism. Is it wrong to help the poor or feed the hungry or house the homeless? Of course not. Is it wrong to oppose evil and the immoral practices of a culture or a society? Of course that's not wrong. In church, we worship. And that worship must include a willingness to honor Jesus and then to care about what Jesus cares about. And he cares about people. He cares about those who are hurt and those who are vulnerable. 
And so the opinion, look what he says at the end of verse 10. Do I do what's right? And they asked him saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Note, again, like Luke's gospel, that they might accuse him. Again, quick Bible study. Who's asking the question? The Pharisees, the religious leaders. Why are they asking the question? To trap him for the purposes of accusation. Why? Look here, Jesus. Here's a man with a withered hand. The test subject's not a dying man because a dying man would still fall into the category of a person who might be able to legitimately and legally receive assistance. Remember what I already told you, that if a person was cut on the Sabbath, you could stop the bleeding, but you couldn't administer a clotting agent. The religious leaders believed that it was forbidden to practice medicine on the Sabbath, even if the healing came from a supernatural source. Mark confirms their intentions as well. In chapter 3, verse 2, it says, So they watched him closely whether he would heal him on the Sabbath <clears throat> that they might accuse him. Isn't that interesting? The reason why it's interesting is Jesus sees a man in need. The religious leaders see a test subject. A guinea pig, a person who could be used to take advantage of Jesus and ultimately get rid of Jesus. The religious leaders are using this man as, as an excuse, as bait. The religious leaders see this man as a means to an end. And because they see this man as a means to an end, it's not just any end, it's Jesus' end. It's the end of Jesus that they desire. The religious leaders were ready to condemn Jesus for healing on the Sabbath, but they had no problem with plotting his death on the Sabbath. Can you not see the hypocrisy and the disconnect? How is it possible for so-called religious people and devout people to be so disconnected from the mind of God, the heart of God, and the reality of what it is that God required? How could they be so blind to their own hypocrisy? Jesus will answer their question, but he does so by rewording their question. The word heal, is it lawful to heal? The word heal means to restore to wholeness or wellness. Most people consider healing a good thing, not an evil thing. If it's right to do good on the Sabbath, but that must also mean, listen carefully, if it's right to do good on the Sabbath, does it make sense to you that it's wrong to do evil on the Sabbath? What do you think? That makes sense to you, I'm hoping. Most people consider healing a good thing. But Jesus will argue that it's always a good thing to do what's right. 
the religious leaders don't even question Jesus' ability to heal the man. What they question is the source of the healing power. Did Jesus heal with the power of God or with the power of Satan? It's with the power of God. We know that for sure. They don't know that, and they certainly don't believe it. The religious leaders assumed Jesus healed with the power of Satan because he healed on the Sabbath day. Now, I want you to think about that for just a moment. The reason why they ascribed Satan to his works is because his healing and the restoration to wholeness on the Sabbath was disconnected from their own religious views. The miracles of Jesus didn't make the legalistic religious leaders believe. Think about this for just a moment. The miracles of Jesus didn't make them believe. The miracles of Jesus made them mad. And I find that very, very interesting. Because anything Jesus has to say or do, they listened and they watched. Not to be convinced that he's who he says he is but to find reason to condemn. They were looking for a way to get rid of the young rabbi who posed such an enormous threat to their religious tradition. Jesus posed a threat to their religious tradition. Jesus poses a threat to social and cultural traditions that say that human beings aren't valuable or that human beings aren't important, or that they don't deserve mercy, compassion, and grace. Is it wrong to give someone back their health or their reputation if it's within your power to do so? Jesus is interested in both the body and the soul. If Jesus could give this man the use of his hand, he's not just simply healing the man. Guess what else he's doing? He's giving this man a job. The moment that he's able to restore the hand, guess what? This guy can get gainful employment. He can increase his opportunity. This is going to contribute not only to the well-being of the man, it's going to contribute to the well-being of his family. And by the way, when you give a man a job, does it help his family? Of course it does. And when you give a man a job, does it help the community in which that man is living? Of course it does. If Jesus could give this man back all of that, he might also be able to give him self-respect and dignity. But look what happens in verse 11. Then he said to them, what man is there among you who has one sheep and if he falls into a pit on the Sabbath will not lay hold of it and lift it out? Jesus gives an illustration. Don't think for a moment that Jesus is appealing to their compassion for sheep. In other words, when he's speaking to the religious leaders and he talks about the sheep falling into the pit, He's not appealing to mercy and compassion. He's appealing to their pocketbook. Sheep were valuable. Sheep were worth money. The Jews listening to the story wouldn't have thought, the poor sheep, what are we going to do about the poor sheep? The poor sheep has fallen into the pit. 
That's not what they're thinking. They're thinking, the sheep is in the pit. That's 10 shekels down the drain. We might as well just flush it down the toilet. Their tradition probably allowed for such disasters. So Jesus gives an illustration that is obvious. Yes, you can do what's right on the Sabbath. If there's any kind of legislation, law, or tradition that allows you to rescue the sheep, if there is a tradition or a law or a policy that allows you to rescue the sheep, doesn't it make sense that you should have some sort of law or policy that allows you to rescue the person? And that's the point. But this doing what's right to preserve wealth, I want you to think about this. Jesus is basically saying to the religious leaders, you're willing to do what's right in order to protect your pocketbook and to protect your wealth. You're willing to do this to save money. You will preserve property and wealth on the Sabbath. But what about a human life? What about a human being? Of how much more value then is a man than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Again, in that simple statement, he's making the obvious assertion. Are people more valuable than sheep? And again, you guys all know the answer. It just depends on who you ask. There are some people who believe that human beings are worth less than animals. Dennis Prager often uses the interesting illustration of asking people. Dennis Prager once said, Imagine that, that you see a man drowning and imagine you see your dog drowning. Which one are you going to rescue? Now, I know that there are some of you out there who are giving this careful consideration because you love your dog and you don't really care for people all that much. You know in your mind and you know in your heart the right answer is that you're supposed to save the person. But in your heart of hearts and soul of souls, you love your animal. And by the way, it's not wrong for you to love your animal. It's just wrong to have a misplaced priority. What's interesting in Dennis Prager's illustration is that 30% of the people who are asked the question say that they would save their dog. I heard someone say that scientists have started using lawyers instead of rats for their experiments. <laughs> you might be wondering why. Because there are some things that rats simply won't do. <laughs> and besides, you don't get as emotionally attached to the lawyers. I'm just kidding. I'm just teasing. Even the legalistic... Jews understood that sheep weren't as important as people. People are made in the image of God. And the point in part that Jesus makes is that something has gone wrong in their heart. That they would even have to make this differentiation. And that they would even ask this question. And I am going to submit to you that something has gone wrong 
in the hearts of the people of the United States of America when they have to ask the question, is it wrong to take the life of an unborn child? To me, to even ask the question is the height of absurdity. How could you not know that killing your unborn child is wrong? The religious leaders would say that people are more valuable. but they would refuse to act in such a way as if it were true. The Jews didn't always respect the non-religious Jew. The Jews certainly didn't respect their Gentile neighbors. In other words, many Jews were racists depending on and despising their fellow human beings. And so once again, just like the earlier chapter, we are forced to ask this question. Do you really care about people? Do you really care about them? Do your actions give your family and your friends and your church the impression that you value people? that you care about them. A news broadcast pictured a group of protesters dressed in animal skins, I assume they were fake skins, outside of a fur shop, and the protesters kept chanting, killing animals to wear them is cruel and unfair. They were chanting, locking up animals in small cages is cruel and unfair. Save the whales, save the seals, save the eagles, save the owls, save the striped salamanders. And just for the sake of argument, let's just assume that some of their concerns, let's just even assume that most of their concerns are correct. Do human beings sometimes abuse animals? The answer is yes. When I worked for the Department of Social Services, someone in order to justify abortion said to me, well, do you want this child to be born in a home where they might be abused? And I said, how can you sit there and telling me that killing the child isn't the ultimate form of abuse? People are cruel to animals. People are cruel to their fellow human beings. Celebrities and the rich often despise their fellow human beings. Ted Turner donated a billion, that's with a B, dollars to the UN. But he says Christianity is for losers. Think about it. Our government has strict legislation against destroying the eggs of bald eagles, but it's willing to pay Planned Parenthood money to dismember children chop them up and sell their dead body parts for money. How can you not know that that's the wrong thing to do? How could, in what world do you come to the conclusion that that's a good thing? 
Why is the eagle in the egg considered an eagle, but the human being in the womb is not considered a person? How can we continue such illogical and inconsistent thinking? Millions of children have been destroyed. India's population now exceeds one billion people. Most are Hindu. Hinduism believes that all life is sacred, and yet Hinduism manages to devalue human life at the expense of animals if a person is crippled, if they're suffering, if they're begging to interfere in their circumstances is to alter karma. Karma to the Hindu means the consequences of previous actions in former lives are played out in this present life. Hinduism teaches the transmigration of souls. You can't kill rats in India who eat grain because rats are sacred. You can't kill insects that destroy crops because insects are sacred. Cows are given grain because they're sacred and then people are left to die. We might criticize our Hindu friends and neighbors. But our guilt and our inconsistency is on a par with theirs. When Christians protested the practice of sati, the ritual burning of widows in India, those widows who joined their husbands on the funeral pyre, the British government rightly said, when people cremate their husbands, they can't burn their wives along with them. And they said, it's our, it's our tradition. And he said, when people kill people in our culture, we hang them for committing crimes. You might think, you have to be sensitive and supportive. Guess what? Just because something is legal doesn't mean it's right. The Supreme Court ruled in 1857 that black people weren't human beings. They were wrong. By the way, that Supreme Court decision was never overturned. The Civil War was fought in part to overturn the decision. Just because something is legal, that doesn't make it right Jesus is using the illustration to point out their illogical and inconsistent teaching. Whether a person is motivated by greed or whether a person is motivated by compassion, the sheep in the pit had a better chance of survival than the person in need. Mark's gospel in chapter three, verse four reads, then he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil? To save life or to kill. But they kept silent, it says. They had to shut their mouth. Because if they would have said, it must be lawful to do good on the Sabbath, they would have violated their own tradition. On the other hand, if they advocated doing evil or killing, they would have, con they would have been condemned by the scripture. And so rather than answer, they just shut their mouth. 
to know what's right and to do what's evil is the worst kind of evil. God demands justice. He also demands mercy and compassion. One Bible teacher says they were trapped in the illogic of their own heartless, unscriptural traditions. Their only recourse was to keep silent, but inwardly they were filled with rage. And you know why? Because Jesus is telling them the truth. Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath? Do our rules and regulations forbid us from doing what is right? At this point, Jesus could have been content to simply reform Judaism. He could have just simply said, hey, you know what? Let's just be a little more diplomatic here. Let's just try and give a little and take a little. Let's work towards some sort of resolution. But then he would have had to abandon his real mission. Jesus didn't come into the world to reform Judaism. And Jesus didn't come into the world to make you a better person or to give you better ideas. Jesus came into the world to save you so that your heart could be forgiven, so that your sins could be forgiven, so that they could be washed and cleansed. He would have had to abandon his mission to save you and to save me and to save the world. The religious leaders in the whole world had fallen into a pit of despair. And in their own illustration, which Jesus is basically using, it's the human being who has fallen into the pit. And Jesus has left heaven and Jesus has come to the earth in order to take you out of the pit of the curse that you are in. The rebellion that you were in, the sin that you were in. Human beings were trapped in a black hole called sin and the religious leaders thought the law could save them. That the law could give them a rope and pull them out of the pit. But the only thing that would ever get them out is the person of Jesus Christ. And so in verse 13, look what it says. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and it was restored as whole as the other. Jesus heals on the Sabbath. Jesus validates God's approval of his Sabbath activity. Remember what he had already said. He said in verse 8, for the son of man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Jesus is basically reminding them and affirming them that he gets to call the shots. Jesus doesn't just simply heal the man medically, but supernaturally. By the way, was it illegal on the Sabbath to simply say, give me your hand? That's not breaking anybody's rules. No one, the most strict legalist, would have disapproved of Jesus saying, stretch out your hand. But the man does so purely by faith in response to Christ's command. He did what Jesus told him to do. In a simple act of faith, he obeys Jesus. And that's exactly who we are. In a simple act of faith, Jesus says to you, Stick out your hand. I'll take your hand. 
I'll rescue you. I'll make you whole. I'll make you well. Jesus doesn't simply approve of what's right. Now, I want you to think about this. Jesus doesn't simply approve of what's right. He does what is right. If ever there was a day to do what is right, it's today. Today is the day. Jesus tells the man, stretch out your hand. And I'm amazed. The man's hand is withered. It's paralyzed. It's deformed. This would be like asking a quadriplegic to give up their wheelchair. Imagine asking a dementia patient or an Alzheimer's victim to to remember. Imagine saying to a person who's paralyzed, withered, broken, hurt, get up. It's as if Jesus is pointing to this man and asking the question, what will you do with him? How will you treat him? Do you care for him? And the man is in need and Jesus is willing to help them. And the moment that the man extended his hand, He flew in the face of the authority and the sensibility of the religious leaders. The man with the withered hand knew that he was making a choice. That the moment that he decided he was going to obey Jesus, is he going to have to disobey the religious establishment? Sometimes that's what we do. The moment we obey Jesus, we disobey the culture the social, the political circumstances. Maybe Jesus has asked you to do something way more difficult than just simply extend your hand. It could be that Jesus has asked you to forgive your husband or your wife or a co-worker. You might say, I can't, I, I, I can't do that. Why can't you? I'm paralyzed. The bitterness and the anger has left me twisted, deformed. I can't do this. I don't have what it takes. I don't have the resources. Have you hurt someone, but you can't or won't own up to it? Is there something withered or broken or paralyzed in your life? If, 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 is there something or someone that's keeping you from wholeness or wellness? And Jesus says, stretch out your hand. And some of you say, I can't. I won't. I'm going to let unbelief decide for me. But the man doesn't. He offers his withered, paralyzed hand. And Jesus does what Jesus always does. He makes it whole. And that's exactly what Jesus will do for you. And the religious leaders? Do they rejoice that a person has been made well? They're hoping, they were hoping Jesus would say, like I said, you know, so It's too bad about your withered hand. We're Jews. We don't work on the Sabbath. My heart really goes out to you. I love the Lord. I love the Bible. I respect God. 
but I can't really help you. But Jesus makes it abundantly clear that if ever there was a day to reach out and offer help, it's today. Jesus refuses to let the man-made traditions and expectations of the religious leaders to serve as an excuse to do anything other than what is right. And look what it says at the end of verse 14. The consequences. Then the Pharisees went out and plotted against him how they might destroy him. The religious leaders were unimpressed with his argument. They were unimpressed with his illustration. They were unimpressed with his miracle. The religious leaders are unmoved and unpersuaded. Jesus has demonstrated the love of God and the mercy of God and the compassion of God and God's care for souls. Jesus desires mercy and compassion and generosity. And the Lord invited the religious leaders to his rest. And remember what they said? We don't want your rest. They invited the religious leaders to do what's right and love mercy, compassion, and generosity. But that's not what they want. We're fine. And the Bible says, because they loved darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil, they remained in their darkness. Jesus threatened Judaism as they understood it and practiced it. And by the way, when you threaten something, you might become the object of a threat. Does Jesus threaten you or frighten you? Are you afraid that if you accept Jesus... You might have to reject deeply held social, cultural, or political beliefs. When religious people don't know what to do, they call a meeting. And that's exactly what the Pharisees do. Then the Pharisees went out and plotted against him. That word plot carries with it the idea of multiple people engaging in a discussion. There was only one thing on their agenda. I'm going to call all of you together. We have one thing on the agenda. How do we get rid of Jesus? The religious leaders couldn't disprove the Savior's words or deny the king's miracles. They couldn't make his words go away and they couldn't make the miracle go away. And so they decided that they were going to make him go away. And so it is, isn't it, that we live in a culture and a society that can't deny Jesus' words or deny Jesus' miracles. But the moment that you decide not just simply to believe what is right, but to also do what is right, almost invariably you're going to receive opposition Donald Gray Barnhouse writes, it's at this point in history that Israel's clock stopped. Israel was turning away from the Messiah. 
Israel was rejecting God's chosen one. There are consequences for doing what's right. People might hate you. They might despise you. They might reject you. And even under horrible and terrible circumstances, they might try to kill you. Remember the purpose of the Sabbath. It was to rest. Remember what the purpose of the Sabbath was. It was to make whole. Jesus illustrates what the Sabbath was meant to be. A place where people could be made whole. A place where people could worship God. A place where people could care about the things that the Lord cares about. Mercy. Compassion. Love. A place where hurting people could be restored. And remember, Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. And he is the Sabbath. He is our rest. He is wholeness and wellness to every single person who will stretch out their hand. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for grace and for mercy. Lord, we know that we live in a world that doesn't always embrace the truth. And Lord, we pray that we would be men and women who love the truth. Lord, we pray that we would be men and women who value people. And Lord, we pray that as we value people, we don't use that as an excuse to neglect or abuse anyone or animals. Lord, we pray that you would place within our heart a profound respect and a deep love for human beings and for the sanctity of life. And Lord, we pray that a wicked culture committed to killing its own future would wake up wake up. Lord, I don't hold out hope that a Supreme Court will come up with a different ruling. I do not hold out hope that any political party will resolve this problem. It is a wicked problem. It's a spiritual problem that's going to require a spiritual solution. Lord, I pray that the hearts of men and women everywhere would turn from their sin and that they would turn to you and that they would value what's right and that they would hate what is wrong. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.